0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Sustainability, green architecture, energy efficient or carbon neutral, there are a lot of different considerations when it comes to designing buildings that are better for people and the planet. By producing high-performance homes, we reduce our reliance on fossil fuel and other limited resources, which can contribute to nature's ability to heal some of the impacts we've had on our environment. When people are lucky enough to build their own home, they can start to ask if they should install solar panels, smart appliances or install a battery, but it can be hard to know how far to go when weighing up these options against your budget. Over the next four episodes, we're asking built environment professionals how can new green technology be incorporated into our buildings. Our guest in this episode is Stephen Choi. Stephen is a UK-qualified project architect and Australian-qualified project manager. He co-founded the not-for-profit environmental building consultancy Architecture for Change and has been a long-time ambassador for the Living Future Institute in Australia. In this interview, Stephen shares what the living building challenge is, the importance of buying products that are either local or being produced ethically, and he talks through some of the amazing initiatives behind the Burwood Brickworks Shopping Centre, which has been certified as one of the most sustainable shopping centres in the world. I'll now hand over to Hilary Duff, an Imagine representative based in Victoria. Let's jump in.
1: Hi, welcome Stephen. Thank you so much for meeting with us today for our Hearing Architecture episode on sustainability in tech. We are actually recording today from Burwood Brickworks in Melbourne. Thank you so much for having us, Stephen. Oh,
2: thank you for having me. boy. thanks for coming to
1: visit? (laughs) No, it's actually, it's been very enjoyable researching and actually coming to see the project now. But I thought we'd start off with just a bit of a spiel about what the Living Building Challenge is.
2: Well, the Living Building Challenge is a a global framework for for the built environment generally, so all kinds of scales. And it's essentially based around the idea that we can do good when we do do buildings. So we have the building code, we've got local planning constraints and so on. But it forgets about those benchmarks and says, okay, we need to do that, obviously. But what if we use nature as a benchmark? So choose anything Anything you mind that you can think of in the natural world. Anything at all. Take a tree, for example. All of its energy comes from the sun. All of its water comes from the rain or the ground. It's rooted in the place that it is growing. It contributes to its ecosystem. Anyone can rest in its shade. It attracts other biodiversity. It's completely, um, equally accessed by any member of society to actually be part of its... Um, local story and I think every building really if we can build them
1: as simple and as eloquently as a tree or anything in the natural environment Mm. that's what the limb building challenge is sort of asking is that possible Mm. and
2: if so how would you do it
1: Mm. incredible I mean it, it seems like we're surrounded by nature and you know it's been going on for millions and millions of years so we should definitely be leaning on that to build something that's a bit more sustainable and long-living. So how then have we got where we are now? We're currently sitting in a completed shopping centre. How did Build Brickworks become and its ties to the Living Building Challenge? When did that originate?
2: Back in 2015, I approached Fraser's Property Australia who I felt were one of the more progressive developers that you would find. If you've seen, say, Central Park in Sydney, you'd know what I mean by that. And um, we were discussing the sustainability strategy. It really relates to, you know, global warming, water pollution, air quality problems, biodiversity. You know, looking at ecosystems, materials, waste, and so on. I'm really discussing the fact that having a sustainability strategy with that S word, which is something I never use, by the way, is really us saying every building we build makes all those problems I just described, worse. And so, would it be possible to build a building that anyone can access? So not a fancy house in rural Victoria or a banking headquarters in the Docklands, you know, but an everyday, ordinary building like a shopping centre in a very ordinary suburb, you know, outside of Melbourne, for kind of very ordinary people who just live and work in the area. Mm Uh, we ran a design competition in 2016. Had entries from all over, primary schools, universities, and like professional consortiums. And then, at the end of 2016, we decided to do feasibility studies to see if we can actually do it. And then we went ahead and started engaging with the tenants, particularly shopping centres. Much like many other commercial buildings, um, the, the majority impacts energy used, or water consumed, or waste produced comes from the tenants. In Australia we have this way of thinking about base buildings and tenancies, so we're really only focusing on what the landlord controls. Live and building challenge requires the whole building to comply. And so there's a supermarket downstairs. It also needs to get all of its energy from renewables, clean all of its water, be completely made of healthy materials. Everything in its operations are really reconsidered. Really That's essentially a process that began with that design competition ended up in a planning process, and then was constructed
1: from 2018 to 2019. Mm-hmm. And you opened in a pandemic?
2: <laughs> yeah, pro- probably not the best <laughs> time for retail, or actually most buildings, um, mm. which was actually just prior to the bushfires, um, mm. which then preceded the pandemic, which is
1: really difficult. Mm. Mm. Oh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, maybe this period is actually a time where where society is reflecting on what spaces we inhabit are actually doing to us as well. We've all spent so much time indoors. I know I've had a couple of conversations with friends about the kind of the attitudes towards sustainability, that S word, um, that it it started off with what we're putting into our bodies. So, you know, the kind of organic food movement and knowing where it's grown. And we've now seen kind of the second step about what people are putting on their bodies where clothes are made, you know, what the, the, the transition from where it's grown made into fabrics and then finally on our bodies. And now finally we're looking at buildings, what are buildings made up of and what the emissions and ongoing impacts are. Mm. So with Bedford Brickworks, my understanding is you, you really interrogated every single thing every material that went into this project
2: yeah it was painfully difficult <laughs> and it was difficult because so much of it is unregulated in our mm-hmm. society so that the gap between what we were trying to do which was vet every material down to 100 parts per million versus what is done which is most materials are full of horrible chemicals that you actually don't even consider the gap is very big and it's a gap that we looked at it across the whole supply chain, so it's not just once the objects like a bit of plasterboard or a window or blinds or the lights on the ceiling, not once it's installed, but when it's extracted from the ground, taken to a factory, manufactured into something, delivered to the site, installed and then operated, and then what happens at the end of life? We thought about that for every single construction product, and there are all sorts of additional thoughts about that. What are the embodied carbon impacts how might you disassemble it what has the uh, air quality impacts of that product who's it made by is it responsibly sourced you know and your you know, when you speak about what you eat and then what you put on your body like every single time we buy something we're making a choice i can buy something knowing that it may have been made by slave children in a country that i've never been to and that's a choice i get to make But to make that choice, you first need transparency. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't know that, no one's advertising that. So that's that big project that we undertook when we did Boat Brickworks and any other living build challenge project. You're really trying to force transparency out of the supply chain. Mm -hmm. And then once you get the transparency, decide if that's something you want to invest in. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: That's really an unusual thing to do. And in fact, for the Boa Brickworks we published the whole list of materials that we use to build the building. And it keeps growing that list because there's new fit-outs and different things that might change, a whole load of new barriers because of COVID, you know, all those things have to be added every time that happens. And apparently, irrespective of the 100 parts per million or the air quality impacts or the embodied carbon or the responsible sourcing, it's the only building in the whole of Australia that's published what it's made of, Mm. of any building type. That's incredible. And that's all publicly available. Mm, yeah, and so many people, so many people, thousands of people. The number of people that have logged in, it goes from, you know, hospitals that are painting their hallways that need a touch-up and they're trying to find a paint that's not going to actually poison the staff and visitors any more than the illnesses they might be facing already. Homeowners that are literally refurbishing or extending their house. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lots of peers and competitors actually using it to
1: have a shortcut to what you know suppliers have been transparent mm-hmm. mm. that's incredible yeah i know personally with our work we've we've had a, a peruse through there and it's i mean how many hours have gone into the research mm. behind and how many materials do you think you researched for
2: this project i think we're somewhere between six and seven thousand that we've researched Wow. Um, it was at least 20,000 hours, I can tell you that much. And that's only really our time. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not including what suppliers had to do to find out what's in their own products or installers that wanted to use something. And we said, if you're going to try to substitute here, you're going to have to do all the research, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So it was a lot of time and effort. But, you know, when you do something for the first time, it does take time and effort. Mm-hmm. And the kind of ripple
1: effects have been really humbling, actually. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned suppliers in there. So were there suppliers that had to do research on their own products? They, they didn't know what was in there? A very large number, hundreds. Right. So you want to take something as simple as paint. Everyone uses paint. Not all paint suppliers make their
2: paint entirely from ingredients that are known to them. They might get lots of sub-suppliers to get particular aspects, you know, to add into the paint products. So they have a broad idea, but they actually don't know. They're not 100 parts per million these sort of levels. And then you take something like air handling unit or a wastewater treatment system, thousands of parts with countless numbers of subsuppliers. You're having to dig down to those levels where mm-hmm. the pump that's attached to that pipe is attached to that tank and the things inside that pump, mm-hmm. where does it come from? What's it made of? There's a lot of a lot of stuff in
1: there. Yeah, you can imagine, even the thousands of materials that make this building, and then you break it down again to the thousands and millions of sub components in that. Yeah, it's a lot of research.
2: Totally, and uh, you know, a lot of suppliers and manufacturers have had to really think about that. I look at a light and I think, okay, what's in a light? Lots of things actually. There's a circuit board, a driver. There's miniature cables. There's solder on the <laughs> There's a, there's So many things, there's housing, there's the bulb itself, and that's just the light. Everyone uses them in every building and no one knows what's in them. Often it's mercury, almost always lead, almost always PVC.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. We're we're all suppliers willing? No,
2: God no. Mm -hmm. I'd say about, about half were willing, half were completely unwilling, and some in the willing side, you know, just were really willing just saw it as such an opportunity to really upskill and to make better products. Mm-hmm. Right. Some of them reformulate the way they make products for us, really? which is now what you find on the shelves and when you go to Bunnings and buy certain things that are on our green sheet. They were remade for the brickworks
1: and now that's how they are made. So this project's had a much wider radius effect than simply this this one building construction.
2: Yeah, I guess all living building challenge projects have that sort mm. of ripple effect. And when you you talk about the subject of this discussion is about technology, it's about applying, you know, some sort of rigor to an approach, a scientific approach generally,
0: to then build upon what's there and then progress something for the greater good. And that's essentially, you know,
2: what these projects are about. Like one building's just a building. Mm. What potential does it have? to go
1: beyond itself, Mm. that's really the question. That's great. And that's, I guess, where this list, which is known as the green sheet, Mm. can continue to live on and affect many people who are, everything from, you know, people renovating their own house through to architects and designers specifying materials every day, which is really useful. But I know we've discussed some pretty impressive facts about some of the materials and where they were sourced, No, um, Fraser's did some statistics about where they were located, adjacent to the building. Can you walk us through those? One of the parts of the Living Building Challenge is to
2: measure where you're spending your money. So where are things manufactured and or assembled? And the reason for that is twofold. One is sort of about the emissions related to transport things, but actually the focus of that part of the Living Building Challenge is about the local economy and who you're Supporting, you know, Australia doesn't have a massive manufacturing industry, as you know. But we were required to understand where everything was being made and then try and really localize it. So, I mean, the numbers are always changing, but somewhere between half and two thirds of all of our money was actually for products that were made or assembled or um, manufactured within 500 kilometers of the site, which is really unusual. Mm-hmm and then another 15 to 20% from memory is around Australia. So we only spent about
1: 25% in total outside of Australia and New Zealand. Which is pretty incredible noting what the the basic expectation is within the building industry. Yeah. A lot of our materials are coming from overseas, yeah. so the fact that it's all... It's cheaper
2: in theory for us, but... Is cheaper only on the surface because we're obviously externalizing those costs. You know, those costs, as I mentioned, of people working in poor conditions or people not even being paid, people, you know, getting kids to cut down old growth forest, that's all externalized to us once we have a product. So if you don't find out where that's from and how it's made and how it's sourced, then
1: you're kind of complicit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were to arms, I think. <laughs> and were all the materials new in this building?
2: No, not all. We have about 90 salvaged materials. There were lots of reasons for that. So around the building, there's a lot of hardwood. Every single bit of hardwood to construct a building salvaged. Every single piece. And the reasons for that were getting full Forest Stewardship Council certified hardwood in Australia is actually Quite a challenge, and certainly was very difficult three years ago, and still is. The thing about salvage products is that, let's say, normally they would off-gas. You know that new car smell. You get that for building products. You go onto a building site, you can smell it at the building site. That's poison, essentially. That's you know stuff that you don't really want to be breathing in. Particulate matter of various sizes, formaldehyde, volatile organic compounds, and so on. And so, salvage products may have had that at some point 50 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago when they were first purchased or made and they don't have that anymore so actually salvaging would generally is much better for your health naturally they're very nearby like you're not salvaging stuff from the other side of the world it just doesn't make any sense it also brings down the embodied carbons you not, you know we have a whole facade of salvaged bricks that were made At this brickworks in the 1970s, and we found these bricks after they'd been used to build houses, the houses got demolished, we bought the bricks and brought them back. To make a brick requires so much energy. So to salvage it means you're actually not firing up a kiln, you know? Mm. And then the added benefit of all of these is that it's never got a kind of soul, a sort of spirit attached to them. You can feel it, you know, There's, there's real time that's embedded in these products you know that that sense of time passing and usage and history they're all bound
1: up inside these physical objects mm. and you hope that they have another life beyond this building mm. you never know what was the process of sourcing some of those materials i'd love to say it was a highly sophisticated <laughs> very professional
2: method that would be lying we we had very low standards for um, <laughs> where we would go to, we had high standards for what we wanted, but you know, it could have been demolition contractors, salvage yards, different warehouses that have salvage products, contractors that are kind of on other projects as well, that have seen things, stuff on the side of the road, Gumtree, Craigslist, I've heard some who used the dark net. Um, <laughs> if, it, if we could get it, then we would, and if we could be sure that it was A, salvaged, and B, responsibly salvaged, then we would do it. And did you always have a plan for it? Was it documented by the architect that this would be a recycled something? No, one of the sort of things that we learned that I think a lot of people could learn is that it's very hard to design something and then try and find necessarily a product that fits that design. That's happened a couple of times. For example, we wanted some worm farms. What we needed was a very large container with a hole in the bottom for the worm juice that was, you know, generally waterproof, could handle quite a lot of weight, we ended up finding a number of bathtubs, right? They're perfect for everything I just described. So that's one example. But the challenge that we learned was that really you have to find materials first and then design around them because trying to shoot a horn and salvage material into a rigid design, you know, just didn't work for us. Mm. so there's a community room at the public can book called the hollow we found all of these old doors that were from a, an office in the Melbourne CBD that was being demolished so we just got all of their doors so we had to redesign the space around the doors rather than we had a, a rough idea that the doors
1: wouldn't fit mm. yeah so the architects helped integrate that mm.
0: yeah
1: so it's not your typical linear design process of having a perfect set of documents, handing it to the builder and saying, go, straight. No, I think the builders <laughs> would have been
2: far happier if that was the case. But it was No, it's more circular and, um, you know, sometimes you take two steps back to go forwards and um, with a lot of the, you know, talking about architecture and how architects practice, a lot of the time there's a bit of a distance between themselves and the trades that are physically doing the, the work. Here, it had to be really tight, like necessarily so, because if someone is building, bringing in a product that's been salvaged, as an example, and you want to work out how to actually integrate it properly, that's very rare for commercial building. You might do that for your own house, but not in you know, a 13,000 square metre shopping centre. you know. Mm-hmm. And we go down to every detail, the signage on the pharmacy, which is made of moss, or the you know the medical center up there which has you know very large backing behind the reception desk you know every single thing mm-hmm. we're looking at that level of detail that requires a um, necessary
1: interrogation correct yeah you know? could you explain your role across the the whole process from the inception this design competition through to where we are now and ongoing? I'll try to.
2: Generally it was to,
1: I guess, annoy different
2: people along, <laughs> you know, start to development, then to design, then to delivery, then to, you know, completion, and then through to operation and commissioning and optimization and building tuning. My background's obviously architecture and, and project management. And so it was really about how we will integrate the living building challenge into this building which has to be a living operating building. A lot of the green frameworks are based on your design or what you've built but not on how it actually is occupied and what really happens once it's open. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Living Building Challenge requires that. So my role really just evolved and kept evolving from running the design composition through to helping manage the design team, helping manage the contractors helping all of the tenants going through the commissioning and tuning process and now helping run the building itself. Mm-hmm. And then new tenants come on board and really onboarding them and, and then generally trying to empower other people to do all of those things, mm-hmm. like other stuff, the operations manager, the marketing manager, whoever it might be. That was really about other people having a role that they normally have that to
1: integrate this
2: different way of thinking.
1: And have you found that... The tenants that have been drawn to to this facility are they coming for all of the the extra? The fact that it is a beautiful place, it's healthy to be in. Are they drawn to that? Mm. Some are, and some are completely indifferent.
2: Many mm. I mean, you have large businesses that, let's say, a cinema, a supermarket, or whatever. They you know they've got strategic reasons for wanting to be in a location. Then you've got mum and dad running a little kiosk. You know, this might be their superannuation or their life savings to do this, um, you know. And so they've got very different reasons. And there was no sort of direct correlation between the kinds of businesses and what ended up wanting to come and for what reasons. So there, I can tell you, though, there are a number of tenancies that would never have come into a shopping centre if it wasn't for the Living Good Challenge and what we did because mm. they were naturally drawn to that. But I actually am as interested, if not more, in businesses that don't have an interest because they're the ones that have such an an impact that, especially when they're national or international, Mm. an ice cream store or whatever, right, that has international presence, if you can change one tiny thing, where it's the plastic spoons that people normally have for ice cream, for example, that ripple effect is bigger than a building, mm. you know, and the tenants, bless them, have just been really amazing, mm. you know, because they're the ones that actually carry the load and the ones that can make it bigger than what it is.
1: Mm. Yeah. And the, the post-occupancy, has everyone been happy? Are they enjoying it? <laughs> it's pretty variable. Um,
2: I've got to say, like, it's been very difficult with all the restrictions we've had in Melbourne so many and you'll see it in our kind of energy data when we are allowed to publish it you know the peaks and troughs relate essentially to lockdowns and um, and even after things open up there's still you know of customer sentiment that relates to whether people are comfortable going out and so on mm-hmm. and different businesses have fared differently you know you've probably heard some businesses have done really well out of the with, out of COVID so there's been huge variation but generally Anywhere there's a staff member, there's natural daylight. Anywhere you're standing, you'll find the ability to have fresh air, a view of the outside, a connection to the natural world, of which we're part A, a large number of tenants and shoppers comment on that mm. daily.
1: Mm. Well, that's, I guess, one of the really special things. That, as you said, it is a an, an average building typology for the average user but to be able to bring in these these small moments where people might notice the difference between what what we've become to know as normal shopping centre, which are often internalised,
0: Mm -hmm. air-conditioned
1: or heated, and and bring in fresh air and good sunlight. You notice that. You really do. Well,
2: the, the number one question inside a lot of those kinds of shops is, and this is staff asking customers, Mm-hmm. What's it like outside? That's terrifying. You're working an eight or ten hour shift and your number one question is, what's it like outside? We just said, unacceptable. Here you have to know if it's summer or winter, if it's rainy, if it's sunny, if it's day or night. You know, you should be able to know. Yeah, It's not a very big thing to ask.
1: i <gasps> will have to think of a new question.
2: Yeah. One well, <laughs> other thing that's really beautiful is, it's a canvas for um, sharing so I don't like the word education because often it can feel quite um, master and slave in nature or teacher and student mm-hmm. but it's a canvas for education in the sense that there's an artwork on the ceiling which tells some orangery stories and it is huge It, it expand, it's literally hanging over our heads and that was a really deep Collaboration that went from a design through to you know our own team learning through to installers who are actually making it happen, and now shoppers or people just visiting because they feel like coming to hang out here, mm. learning about our um, cultural history
1: at a shopping centre. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's great. What about some of the other things that are a little bit abnormal for a shopping centre? So you've spoken about the worm farm on the roof. Mm. That the building grows we've got a productive farm yeah. there's about 5187
2: square meters of urban <coughs> agriculture half of it is on a, a farm managed by acre so that's um you know you'll find chickens and quails out there you'll find about 200 different species of food but the idea was to connect people to the food that they eat so i remember Clearly on opening day, I was exhausted. I was, you know, we were working till like 3am, helping retailers actually get their stuff out and, <laughs> and so on. And on the opening day, like, thousands of people turned up. And I remember we opened the doors to the farm and the kids came running through. And um, we had a whole wall of strawberries. And within about three minutes, they were all ripped off and eaten. And you could see kids who had never, never seen food growing never seen Enough. food growing in their lives and thought that, you know, strawberries come from planets. I actually, like, I <laughs> shed a tear at that moment thinking that's what this was about. I totally forgot. I was exhausted. And seeing that and seeing not just instead of having food miles, you've got food meters, right? So it's grown here and then eaten here. Then there's a digester uh, uh, to manage the waste on site and then it's put, used immediately if we want it, right? There's also um, you know lots of other things that are kind of more hidden too. Like we have a wastewater treatment system in the basement that recycles all the rain grey and black water in the building, so there's no stormwater that leaves this site. I mean that's very very unusual for any building, let alone a shopping centre. There's a you know twenty imperatives in the Living Building Challenge, and you have to kind of do all of them. It's not a point scoring exercise. You just have to do all of them if you want to be fully certified. Mm -hmm. And they vary wildly, you know, in terms of how they're very pervasive, so how they affect every single aspect of building and operations, you know. And new public transport infrastructure, or hundreds of bicycle spaces, showers, showers in a shopping centre that people can use to encourage them to use them, to encourage people to run or cycle. You've got lots of Typologies that also make it more about, not just about convenience shopping, but about experience and connection. So I mentioned a medical centre, there's also a childcare centre, there's a dog salon, there's a yoga studio, you know. And so people are really coming, you know, in a kind of community sort of way. And you might just come for a loaf of bread or you might do a yoga class or you might meet someone for a coffee on the farm,
1: Mm. you know, on a shopping centre very cool thing to do Mm. and I can see that it becomes again that ripple effect it's affecting the surrounding communities Mm. it's it's becoming the local hub for coffees and yoga and that's what you know we we want all of our shopping centers to be rather than something you have to drive for for miles to get to Mm stay for how many hours and leave again? And so if if people are interested, are they able to come and can, can we walk through the rooftop farms? So and What can we actually see? Can we see the wastewater treatment plant? Yeah, so you can um,
2: go onto the farm at any time. You can walk through, obviously, all of the public areas. You can see the solar from up on level one. You can go into the basement and look at the wastewater treatment um, system. We've made a very, in theory, clear diagram, but it's still highly technical because it's biology. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, not just, it's not just completely machinery, it's a, a membrane aerated bioreactor, mm-hmm. which is part of it. And so you, it relies on you know, real life. and It's kind of a bipolar design of its own, actually, mm-hmm. in terms of how it functions. You can walk around the whole centre. there's actually more uh, Wurundjeri artwork in the public square next to it, in the facades, and people are encouraged to, and then we set up a QR code system so um, when you are around, if you want to scan any of the signage, it tells you a bit of a story, you know, and it's told by the tenants. So the pharmacist is telling you about the energy systems, the nurse is telling you about air quality, you know, the butcher is telling you about how far things are sourced from. You know, it's, it's really cute and mm. really insightful. Shows you some of the behind the scenes areas that, you know, public can't always go into because it's a back of house bin room or something mm. I mean, you can't have thousands of people for safety reasons, but um, you get to see that through the videos, mm. you know, while you're here
1: by the well I guess you call them locals. The, the tenants are the locals. They are, it? yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I highly encourage everyone to come visit. I guess wrapping up, do you have any advice for people who maybe they are designers, maybe they are looking at jumping into the construction industry and are trying to make a difference to procedures or or processes that are typically quite linear without having I guess, the power of a a big developer behind you. How can everyday people kind of shake the system? Mm.
2: There are so many ways. What you choose to purchase, where you choose to work, what projects you say yes or no to. I think one big thing for me is just trying to remove ego. A lot of the time, people in the world of environmental sustainability in... inverted commas, uh, often can come across as very arrogant, well-meaning, but rather arrogant and rather critical. And that culture means that a lot of people shy away from doing something that's really progressive because they think they're going to be restricted or restrained or shamed. And shame doesn't last. You know, it's quite effective to get some change, but not lasting change. It's not inspiring. And so I would say for the everyday person, architect, designer, you know, try to actually think about how you're learning to and you can share that, you know, in completely different ways that isn't sort of lecturing someone. Something that people always say to me is, oh, it's great how you've managed to take all your tenants on a journey with you. And um, I always say that that's totally the wrong way around. It's like they've kind of taken us on theirs and we've been able to go on their journey. And, and learn a lot if not more from them than they would ever from us and so that is a very different psychologically different approach to how you go about your daily work because as you know the world of architecture architects have a, almost a reputation for some kind of arrogance ego focusing or prioritizing things that are not of value to anyone other than the architect looking to win an award really trying to check yourself at the door, I guess, and think about how it is that you can best serve the people you're working for. And the people that you're working for are the people who are out in the world manufacturing products or people who are working at the landfill sites or the people who are the direct impacts of the air quality Mm -hmm. changes that you are. Everything we do has an impact, everything. And it's not so black and white and going... How do you do a sustainable? If every single choice you make, it can either be regenerative, like what we've tried to do here, or degenerative. Every conversation you have, Mm -hmm. our relationship, as a result of this conversation, can either be made more positive, or made more negative, or sustainable, neutralized, right? I like to think of the world in that way, you know, and every time you engage in anything, you have that, you have an impact. You're a butterfly that can cause a storm.
1: That is a great way to wrap up, I think. May we all be butterflies causing storms (laughs) and having regenerative conversations. But thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. Um, And hope to see all our listeners here in Burwood at some point.
2: You're always welcome.
0: This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thanks again to our guest in this episode, Stephen Choi. Thank you so much for sharing your thought process and experience working on sustainable projects across many scales. We can't wait to see the next initiative you take on that will lead the way in sustainability. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produced podcasts by architecture fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. If you'd like to hear from some more amazing architects, you can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad, and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favorite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy and the Imagine production team was Hilary Duff, Kimberley Huey and Max Legal White. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions, written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.